Give us a thing. On August the 7th, ISIS captured a group of Syrian workers, Syrian Christian workers, and the next day the militants asked if the Christians had renounced Islam for Christianity. When the Christians said that they had, the rebels asked if they wanted to return to Islam. The Christians said they would never renounce Christ. The 41-year-old team leader, his young son and two ministry members in their 20s were questioned at one village site where ISIS militants had summoned a crowd. The team leader presided over nine house churches he had helped to establish. His son was two months away from his 13th birthday. And all were badly brutalised and then were crucified. They were left on their crosses for two days and no one was allowed to remove them. Eight other ministry team members, including two women, were taken to another site in the village that day and were asked the same questions before a crowd. The women, uh, whose ages were 29 and 33, tried to tell the ISIS militants They were only sharing the peace and love of Christ and asked what they had done wrong to deserve the abuse. The Islamic extremists then publicly assaulted the women and seriously violated them. However, they continued to pray during the ordeal, leading the ISIS militants to beat them all the more furiously. As the two women and the six men knelt before they were beheaded, they were all praying. Villagers said some were praying in the name of Jesus, others said some were praying the Lord's Prayer, and others said some of them lifted their hearts, their heads to commend their spirits to Jesus. One of the women looked up and seemed to be almost smiling as she said, Jesus. After they were beheaded, their bodies were hung on crosses. Even those who leave to escape persecution, however, may encounter ISIS militants in refugee camps. One Muslim man from northern Syria who joined ISIS went to a Christian meeting in a refugee camp with the intention of killing the workers gathered there. Something kept him from following through on his plan though and that night he saw Jesus in a dream. The next day he came back and said, I came to kill you, but last night I saw Jesus and I want you to know, and I want to know what you were teaching. Who is this one who held me up from killing you? The Christian team leader said he received Christ with tears and today he's actually helping in the church, helping out other people. We're praying for lots of such souls to change to Paul's. This was just in these last two or three months. It's a terrible, a terrible story, isn't it? Yet at the same time, it's an actually amazing story. It's terrible to hear what happened to people seeking to follow Jesus and seeking to tell others about him. But it's amazing that even in the midst of such terrible persecution and treatment, even some of those doing the persecution are finding Jesus and are turning to Jesus and are trusting in him. Absolutely amazing story. And this kind of thing is happening right now. This was in August. It's happening right now in Syria and other countries. And it was happening in Syria 2,000 years ago. As Satan tries to wipe out those that follow Jesus and prevent them from spreading the good news about Jesus. The good news that people can have a relationship with God, can have their sins forgiven, can receive eternal life through trusting in Jesus. Now last week we went back in the New Testament to the book of Acts of the, um, and uh, in the New Testament of the Bible and we saw how the good news of the Bible began to spread amongst non-Jewish people for the very first time and non-Jews became Christians trusted in Jesus. And today we're going to continue where we left off last week and we're going to look at Acts 11 from verses 19 to 30. These first Christians faced terrible persecution and have been scattered from Jerusalem. And many of them were absolutely running for their lives just like is happening today in Syria and in other parts of the world. 
And some of them ended up in Syria, in cities like Damascus and Antioch. Stephen, one of the key figures who we read about in Acts, one of the key figures in the church in Jerusalem, had been stoned to death by a mob, a Jewish mob in Jerusalem, led by a key guy called Saul. But Saul, who hated these Christians with a passion, as he went to Damascus in Syria to round up the Christians there, he came face to face with Jesus in a vision, just like the guy in our account earlier. And as a result of that vision, he trusted in Jesus. And Saul went from being a violent man out to kill Christians to a man who became one of the key leaders of the church. He changed his name from Saul to Paul. And amazingly, he actually wrote most of the New Testament of the Bible. So let's read this morning from Acts 11, 19 to 30. And let's see what happens in the lives of these persecuted Christians and in the life of Saul, the man who became Paul. So we're going to read from... Uh, Acts chapter 11, and we're going to read from verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Verse 19 tells us that those who had been scattered by the persecution in Uh, connection with Stephen, travelled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message initially only to Jews. People from the very first church in Jerusalem had to flee to escape the persecution and travelled as far as what is now Lebanon and some even went across to Cyprus. And some went to Antioch, which is just inside the border of what is now modern-day Turkey, but was then in the Roman province of Syria. And it's just a a few miles across from the Syrian border today. And as they found themselves in these different places, they began to tell their fellow Jews about Jesus. And some of these people trusted in Jesus. And as a result, churches began to spread up, uh, to spring up. Church just means an assembly, a gathering of Christians. And so there were these groups of people, assemblies of Christians, gatherings of Christians, congregations of Christians who were uh, being created as people trusted in Jesus and came to know Jesus as a saviour. And they began to meet together and form local churches. Verse 20 says, Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about Jesus. Inspired in part by what they heard from Peter, we looked at Peter last week, how he uh, kind of pioneered the way and took the gospel to not just the Jews, but to to Gentiles as well, non-Jews. They too began to spread the the good news, the gospel, to non-Jews. Verse 20 talks about spreading and speaking the good news to Greeks. And and this just means people who who spoke Greek or were culturally Greek, which was the language of the Roman Empire, of course, which is another way of saying people who weren't Jews, in other words, people who were Gentiles. And here's the key bit in verse 21. 
the Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. As they did their bit, and as they told people about Jesus, God blessed their efforts and empowered them so that what was probably just their very faltering efforts, and we can all identify with that, can't we, when we perhaps try and share the good news with other people and we don't make a great job of it and we struggle, but the Lord's hand was with them and blessed what was probably just their faltering efforts so that people responded to what they were hearing. They believed in Jesus as the facts about Jesus were presented to them. And they turned away, the Bible says, from their old lives and they turned to live for God instead. And it's an amazing turnaround in the situation, isn't it? What at first looks like a complete disaster for the church in Jerusalem. The Bible says in Acts 8 that all except the apostles were spread and were scattered. Just the apostles were left in Jerusalem. The church, possibly several thousand strong, were scattered all over the kind of Middle East and, and, and further parts of the Roman Empire through persecution. But what seems to be an absolute disaster actually turns into a triumph. Evil seems on the one hand to be in charge and to be prospering. Followers of Jesus are being killed, they're being imprisoned, and many more of them are on the run. But then because they're forced to flee from Jerusalem, they're able to reach people that otherwise they wouldn't have planned to have reached. They would probably never have travelled to these cities or never got round to doing it quite as quickly as they had, despite the fact that Jesus had given the disciples a commission to go into all the world. The apostles didn't look like doing that anytime soon. And it was because of this persecution that God forced the church out, or he used the situation to move the Christians out, and the gospel spread much more rapidly than otherwise it would have done. See, God is at work behind the scenes. It's not that God is causing the evil, God is pure, and God hates evil, but because God is all-powerful, and because God's sovereign... He turns evil into good. He's working behind the scenes to bring good out of bad things. It's a bit like when Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt. And many years later, he's then reunited with his brothers. And having become the second most powerful man in Egypt, he says these words to his brothers. He says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. See, God turns around an evil situation, and uses it for good to accomplish his plans. And what seems like a disaster can be turned into triumph. And we need to try and grasp this, because when we face disasters and struggles and difficulties in our own lives, perhaps in our families, and even in the life of our church, we need to cling on to the fact and the truth and, and, and believe the truth that God is still in charge and God is still on the throne. When everything seems to perhaps be turning bad and things seem to be out of control for us, to cling on and to trust God that he is in control. See, we need to trust God that he's at work. We need to trust that God is at work in difficult situations, that he's at work behind the scenes, that God is sovereign. Write that on your outline. There should be an outline in your seat. If you want to use that this morning, please do so as we work through this morning. We need, in those difficult times, when everything seems to be going to pot, when everything seems to be a mess, and it must have seemed like that for those first Christians who were scattered through persecution, on the run for their lives. And it must seem like that today for Christians in places like Syria, who are on the run, wondering if they'll eat tomorrow, wondering if they'll live tomorrow, whether they'll be crucified tomorrow. Can you imagine thinking, I might get crucified today? That's, I mean, I, I'm not sure what I'm going to eat today, but I know I'll eat something. I'm not sure quite what I'll be doing all through the day, but I've got a fair idea. But the concept that I might actually get crucified today, that, that's a difficult thing to get our heads around, isn't it? But there are believers, our brothers and sisters today in the world, who are living with that reality and facing that reality. And it's in those moments that we need to trust God, that God is at work, and that God is sovereign, even when 
everything seems to be saying the opposite. What seemed like a disaster on so many levels was only part of the picture. God was at work, and as a result of the persecution, many more people got to hear about Jesus and gave their lives to him as a result. And this doesn't mean that just because God's at work, the disasters and the struggles that we face in life are less difficult and unpleasant. Just because we know God's at work doesn't make them any less difficult to deal with or any nicer to accept or or, or handle. But it does mean that we're not abandoned and left alone in meaningless situations. We're not just in a random chance universe where we are just in meaningless situations with meaningless pain and difficulty. God is at work. God is sovereign. He's at work behind the scenes. So we're not alone and abandoned. God is sovereign. And and, and God's sovereignty simply means this, that he uses all things to fulfill his purposes and even uses evil for his glory and for our good. Let me repeat that. God's sovereignty means that he uses all things to fulfill his purposes and even uses evil for his glory and for our good. Saul whipped up this terrible persecution in Jerusalem. And those first followers of Jesus were terribly persecuted. But without realizing it, Saul actually caused the gospel to spread and for even more people to trust in Jesus. And I just, you know, just like that account that we read at the beginning, Saul actually ended up meeting Jesus face to face in a vision and surrendering his own life to Jesus. And let's pray that many more of the people today causing the great persecution too come face to face with the Lord Jesus. If you want to help in some way or other, there's a, there's a, a petition out in the entrance hall which Brian is looking after to help create safe havens for persecuted people, particularly Christians in the Middle East. It's being run by Barnabas Fund. Please do sign up to that if you can. It's just on the desk out there. But the other truth that we see in these verses is the total commitment to spreading the gospel, the good news about Jesus, wherever the people were scattered and wherever they found themselves. They didn't cower and keep quiet when they were running from the Jewish authorities. I don't know how I would behave in a situation like that. I guess none of us really know how we will respond or what we would behave like if we were put in situations like that. I hope, I I pray that I would respond like these guys that we read about in Turkey and in Syria. But ultimately none of us know until we're in those situations. But these people in the New Testament didn't cower, they didn't keep quiet. They instead used the opportunity to tell people about Jesus. And as a result, churches were planted and began in Cyprus, in, in, in Lebanon and in Syria. These persecuted Christians, as they settled into new areas as refugees, began telling the people, both Jews and non-Jews, about Jesus. And they just got on with the task. This wasn't some part of some great big missions program that was planned and orchestrated by the church in, in Jerusalem. We read about those later in the book of Acts. Men like Paul had great missionary journeys with great strategies to reach key places in Europe. But this was just a case of people getting on with the job of telling other people about Jesus and forming churches with those new believers. The church back in Jerusalem weren't even involved. They knew nothing about it. The apostles, the 12 leaders that Jesus had appointed to head up the church, they weren't directing things. In fact, they knew nothing about what was happening. Look at verse 22. News of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. It wasn't until after the event that the church in Jerusalem got to hear what was happening up there in Antioch. And as a result, they decided to do what they could help, what they could do to help. So they sent Barnabas, a key leader in Jerusalem, to go and help them. Verse 23 says, When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. When Barnabas got there, he saw what God was doing. And he could see what he was doing through these ordinary Christians, people who were refugees, 
God had been saving people from their sin and turning them into his followers. And it's just the great example of, of, of followers of Jesus just getting on with the job of being faithful to him and spreading the good news alongside other churches getting along and helping and supporting them. Great partnership between these situations. This church in Jerusalem who when they find out about the situation do what they can to step in and help and support. And you know, we don't need to and we shouldn't restrict our efforts to spread the gospel, the good news about Jesus to just to official ministries and church events. Just because uh, something hasn't been arranged or planned as a church doesn't mean that we have to wait to spread the gospel to those events. You know, if we're in work or with our families or people in our streets or all sorts of situations, just get on with spreading the good news. We don't have to have it sanctioned by the church leaders. It doesn't have to be part of a church program. We don't wait until there's a special event on a church. We just get on with the job, or we should do. We all need to be involved in spreading the good news about Jesus to other people all the time, wherever we go. And we can do that with the knowledge that we do have a church behind us that will support us and back us and, and provide resources to help us. We, we've talked for some time now um, about planting a new church from region, starting a new church to reach more people with the gospel somewhere in this region. And I don't know what that's going to look like or when that will happen or who will be involved, but there's a few people who have expressed an interest in being part of that, which is great. But I want to bring a fresh challenge to all of us this morning. Is God calling me or you to be involved in planting a new church. It's probably not going to happen next week or even the week after and we've got to be able to sustain, keep running a church here. So don't panic. It's not looking at happening you know, in the next two or three weeks or two or three months. But nothing to stop it happening if people just go out there and spread the good news and suddenly there's a group of Christians and a church forms. That would be great, wouldn't it? But we can work in partnership and we can as a church try and facilitate new churches to be planted. These folks, these folks who started these new these new churches in Antioch and Cyprus and Lebanon, they weren't some expert team of church planters. They were refugees on the run from persecution. The churches almost began by accident. But of course we know it wasn't an accident because God was behind the scene, God was sovereign and God was turning what seemed to be like bad situations into good. And that's just it. Whilst we should use our best efforts and methods and we should plan and have strategies, all of that's totally biblical and sensible, but we don't need to be experts. God used a group of refugees who simply kept telling other people about Jesus. And because, as Luke says, the Lord's hand was with them, they saw great things happen. See, we don't need degrees in church planting or evangelism. We just need to be willing to go and to spread the good news and to let God do the rest. We can't save anybody anyway. It's the Holy Spirit in God's sovereignty and plan who opens people's hearts to receive the message that we bring to them. So is God stirring up your heart? Maybe he's sowing a seed in your heart this morning about being involved in church planting. There's a great massive need across our region. Whole suburbs and, and parts of Tyneside where there are no functioning evangelical churches where the gospel is being preached. Desert lands of, 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 of the gospel in Northumberland and County Durham and Tyneside. Is God calling you? Is he sowing a seed into your heart to be involved in planting a new church. If he is, then share that with other people and specifically come and see Keith or Paul or myself so that we can pray with you and look at what that might look as we move forward. Now, when Saul encountered the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus on his way to arrest the followers of Jesus, he then spent three years spending time alone with God. He went into Arabia, the Bible says, and, and, and that was where God uh, taught him the gospel and, and revealed 
uh, the gospel to him and he understood all of the, the parts of the Old Testament and so on. And he spent about three years in, in Arabia and in Damascus learning more about Jesus, more, learning more about God, learning more about the gospel. And then he went up to Jerusalem and he met with the apostles, the leaders of the church. And while he was there, he was befriended by Barnabas, who we've read about today. And while he was in Jerusalem, Paul commissioned, uh, God commissioned Paul to become an apostle, to become one of God's special messengers with great authority and to go and to be the apostle that the sent one, God's special messenger, specifically to non-Jews, to take the gospel and to do that. And so Saul, who then became Paul, went on from Jerusalem, went back to Tarsus, his hometown, which is now uh, up in modern-day southern Turkey, and he spent time there. We don't know what he did, we don't know very much about it, until Barnabas went to get him. Look at verses 25 and 26. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church, and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. How cool would that be? Paul and Barnabas here for a whole year. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? Uh, it must have been amazing to be at Antioch in those early days of the church. The church in Jerusalem wanted to help and partner with this new church in Antioch, and so it sent Barnabas, who in turn brought uh, Saul along to help him teach and equip this new church. They invested a whole year teaching these new followers of Jesus. And as they began to grow and mature, they stood out and they became known amongst the people of Antioch. There's a map up here for you of the uh, Roman Empire at that time. And Antioch was a city of around half a million people. It, it was a massive uh, thing. This was the kind of size of Tyneside population-wise, or, or, or a massive chunk of people there. This group of Jesus followers, we don't know how many they were, although Luke talks about great numbers of people, this group of Jesus followers stood out and are well enough known to be given a name by the people around them. Luke says the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. This name that we know so well and often gets misused by people was first used to describe the, the disciples in Antioch. And a disciple is just someone who follows somebody else, who takes on board all their teachings, who absorbs their lifestyle, their behaviour and gives themselves totally to the other person. And the Bible says that these people were disciples of Jesus. And as they lived their lives that were radically different from those around them, people came to know that the reason that their lives were so radically different was because that they were disciples of Jesus, they were followers of Jesus, the one who was the Christ. And the word Christ is uh, a Greek word, it means the same as Messiah, which is Hebrew, and it simply means God's chosen king, God's special king. And so the people of Antioch gave them the name Christians, in other words, people who belong to Christ, people who belong to Jesus, people who've surrendered their life to, to the Lord Jesus Christ and for whom Jesus is their Lord and their Saviour and their King. And it's a wonderful name because not only does it speak about Jesus, but it speaks about being a new kind of person. These Christians, these Jesus followers, no longer identified themselves as Jews or Greeks or Romans. They identified themselves and were known by others as Christians, those who belong to Christ, as people who followed and belonged to, to Jesus. Saul, who changed his name to Paul when he became a follower of Jesus, a Christian, wrote these words in the Bible. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, our nationality is irrelevant. Our education is irrelevant. Our social standing is irrelevant. Our occupation is irrelevant. Whether we're male or female is irrelevant. See, we need to leave behind our old identity and identify ourselves now as a Christian. Write that on your outline. We need to leave behind our old identity, whatever we took our identity from, 
our social standing, our occupation, our nationality, whatever it might have been, and no longer see ourselves principally as that thing, but now begin to identify ourselves as a Christ one, as a follower of Christ. See, if you're a follower of Jesus and I'm a follower of Jesus, then we are Christians. We're Christ's ones. We're part of a new race of people, a new group of people, a new nation, if you like. We belong to Christ Jesus and therefore to each other. We're brothers, we're sisters. So let's say even if our nations were at war with each other, which uh, might happen in some situations where one Christian is from one nationality and one Christian is from another nationality, and those two countries might be at war, but those Christians should not be. Because their ethnicity, their nationality is no longer their identity. It is now left behind. So even if our nations are at war with each other, we are not. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. There's, there's no room or place for nationalism in the church. The fact that I'm English is of no real relevance anymore. I might support England when a, an English team uh, plays very badly at sport, and, and that's fine. But you know, beyond that, it's just my history. It's the past. It's where I've come from. But my new identity, my new life is defined by Jesus, not by my ethnicity not by my social standing, not by my occupation or my salary or, or education, whatever else it might be. There's no place for treating people differently because of their education or their employment or where they live. We are just now brothers and sisters. We're all the same. Whatever standing we have out there gets left out there because when we come in here, we're all just one. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And that was clear in Antioch, wasn't it? Because they no longer saw themselves as Jews or Gentiles, they saw themselves as brothers and sisters, as followers of Jesus, as Christ ones, as Christians. The church in, in Antioch was mostly a Gentile church. It was full of Greek-speaking people who lived in a Greek culture, who, who were culturally Greek. And yet the church back in Jerusalem was made up of people who were ethnically Jewish. And they mostly spoke Hebrew or Aramaic. Their culture was Jewish. So we've got two different groups of people who, in human terms, had every right not to cooperate, not to want to spend time with each other. There was great potential for these groups not to work together, but that's not how they saw things. Because their new identity was in Christ, was in, was in Jesus. It wasn't in their ethnicity. Look at verses 27 to 28. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up, and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. These Gentile Christians received and welcomed Barnabas and Saul, and they received these prophets from Jerusalem, who were all ethnically Jews. And these people who were enabled to prophesy by the power of the Holy Spirit passed on the special knowledge that God had given them that there was going to be a famine right across the Roman Empire. And because of this information and in response to it, the Christians in the church of, in, in Antioch, despite being ethnically mostly Gentile, sent whatever money they could to help their brothers in need in Jerusalem. Because they now saw that they were brothers and sisters. They weren't separated by ethnicity anymore. Despite the fact that they were mostly Jews, these Gentile Christians said, no, we're going to help them and do whatever we can. Look at verses 29 to 30. The disciples, each according to their ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. You see, following Jesus had given them a new identity and a new way of living. They wanted to help their brothers and their sisters in Christ in Jerusalem. And they were prepared to sacrifice their own money to help those in need in the Jerusalem church. The church in Jerusalem didn't ask for it, they didn't demand it. This was the Christians in Antioch responding to what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. 
and choosing to give sacrificially to help their brothers and sisters in another part of the world. So write this down. You see, God wants me to use my finances to help those in need and to spread the good news about Jesus. God wants me to use my finances to help those in need and to spread the good news about Jesus. These new Christians in Antioch had probably not been Christians for more than a year. Barnabas and Saul spent a year teaching them. We don't know exactly when these things happened chronologically, but probably about a year. But they'd already matured to the point where they were going to give sacrificially to help their brothers and sisters in Christ and to therefore help spread the good news about Jesus. And you know, following Jesus brings a new attitude, or at least it should, to our finances and to our possessions so that we no longer see them as this world tells us that we should see them as our own things given to us for our pleasure but rather that we see that God has loaned us all that we have and that to truly follow Jesus involves surrendering all that we have to him and putting it all at his disposal. These new Christians in Antioch got that and they put their new faith and their beliefs into practice by giving sacrificially to the church in Jerusalem. I wonder this morning if God is speaking to you about your finances and how you use them. Do you see them as as yours for your pleasure or something that God has given to you to use to bring him glory, to use to be used at his disposal, to serve him principally through helping other believers so that the gospel can be spread. This passage is a, is a wonderful passage that, that describes the spread of the good news about Jesus and we're going to keep working our way through Acts in the coming weeks and seeing how the Lord works and spreads the good news and how the gospel spreads right across the Roman Empire and how churches are planted. It's about how lives are changed, how churches have begun and there's so much that we can learn from it. What I want to do now before I hand back to Paul in a moment so that we, as we take communion together is to, for us all just to pause for a moment and bow our heads and pause and reflect. So let's just close our eyes and just have a moment of reflection and quiet. It it may be today that you need to trust God and trust in his sovereignty if you're going through a difficult time. Maybe that everything's a bit of a mess right now for you and you can't really see a way forward. And the challenge and the call is to, to trust God, that God is at work, that God is sovereign, even when it makes no sense for you. It may be that God is challenging you to tell more people about the gospel, about the good news about Jesus. It may be that God is calling you to be involved in church planting. If he is, then come and talk to one of the elders about that. It may be that God is challenging you to rethink how you view yourself and your identity and how you view other Christians and other people full stop. It may be that God is challenging you to rethink how you use your finances and what you do with them. So in the sanctity of this moment, let's just open our hearts to God and allow his spirit to speak to us and work in our hearts as he sows seeds into our lives that we might listen and respond and not just be hearers of the word but doers also.
Father, we thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that you are at work right across the universe this morning, right across this planet, right across our nation, in our own lives, in our own church. Help us to trust you in all circumstances. Father, thank you that you've entrusted with us the, the task of spreading the good news. Help us to be active and spreading the good news about Jesus. Father, if you want us to plant a church, speak to us. Help us to just take those steps to begin to look at what that means for us. Father, we pray that not just this church, but churches right across Tyneside would, and right across this nation would once again begin to reach out, to plant new churches, new congregations, so that many more people right across this region and nation might come to know you. Help us, Father, to give of our own selves sacrificially in our finances, in our possessions, our time, our gifts, our abilities for your glory and for the sake of others who need your help. Lastly, Father, this morning we pray for those, for our brothers and sisters in places like Syria this morning who face the most horrendous challenges and situations. Strengthen them, we pray. Give them grace and strength to go through this terrible testing time for them. Protect them, we pray. Rescue them, we pray. And Lord, in the midst of the terrible things that are happening, we pray that many more of these Saul-type people will become Pauls. People who hate you and hate the gospel will encounter you and will turn to you. And we pray that love and the gospel will defeat hatred and war and evil. We ask this in Jesus' name.